Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today needs no introduction, but we're going to give her one anyway. Nina Totenberg is National Public Radio's award-winning and legendary legal affairs correspondent. Her coverage of the Supreme Court and legal and political affairs have won her widespread acclaim and recognition. Newsweek calls her the creme de la creme of NPR, and Vanity Fair calls her queen of the leaks. She's not a lawyer, but any lawyer in this town will tell you she knows way more about the law than they do, and I will include myself in that category. Nina Totenberg, my friend, it is a privilege to welcome you back to Words Matter. Thank you so much for having me. I like to think I'm queen of the hard work, not queen of the leaks. You are queen of that, too. As a former intern, I can say queen of the hard work comes first. So last week an historic week for only the third time in American history, the impeachment trial of the president of the United States began in the U.S. Senate. So, Nina, you covered the trial last time around in the 90s. So take us back to January of 1999, the Senate impeachment trial of Bill Clinton. And actually, I want to quote how you described the tone and tenor of that proceeding at the time to give us some context. And this is what you said. Let me talk first about what it was like in the Senate chamber. It was very somber. I would even say sad. All the senators were at their places, listening pretty attentively, a lot of yawns, some people looking almost stunned, and all of this with pervasive sadness. So one of the things that stood out in researching the Clinton impeachment trial was the cooperation between Mm. the majority leader the Republican Trent Lott, his Democratic counterpart, Minority Leader Tom Daschle. All of this was swarming around at the same time. But how are things different than the U.S. Senate in 1999? Everything's different. Everything's different. To begin with, there was that cooperation. The chief justice was presiding over the Supreme Court at the same time that he was presiding over the impeachment, Justice John Roberts is. But he had a court that was had not had any changes in five years. Here we have two new, relatively new Trump appointees. I don't remember that the docket was particularly explosive that year, but it is particularly explosive this year. And the chief justice will almost certainly want to preserve as much as he can the notion that the Supreme Court is impartisan and separate from this. So I wouldn't look for him to be an interventionist hugely in the proceedings. It was a very partisan time, too. But there were a lot of institutionalists around back then. And there don't seem to be many of those, if any of those, left. And two of the institutionalists were the majority leader, Trent Lott, and the minority leader, Tom Daschle. And they actually installed a hotline between their two offices so that they could reach each other anytime they wanted. And they did it daily, if not hourly, they told me. Wow. I can't imagine that happening right now. Uh, but let's let's talk about the House managers. In 1999, there were 13 Republicans, all men, 
all white. Three are still on Capitol Hill, actually. Steve Shabbat and Jim Sensenbrenner in the House and Lindsey Graham in the Senate. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about what is a House manager and what their role in the Senate trial is? As much as one can, the analogy is that the vote to impeach is an indictment and the trial is like a trial, except, of course, the rules are different. The jurors, as it were, make all the rules. Uh, The judge can be overridden all the time. So with that in mind, the role of the House managers is to be the prosecutors, to make the case for removal of the president, why he should be removed, what were his high crimes and misdemeanors, what is the proof for them. And the role of the president's lawyers is to defend him, just as a defense lawyer would. And you say the judge, in this case, the chief justice, John Roberts, can be overruled at any time. So I wanted to ask you, because there is very little precedent in this case, and that's all we lawyers depend on, but what happens if the Democrats get three Republicans over to their side about witnesses, whether or not to bring these key witnesses forward in a Senate trial, former National Security Advisor John Bolton and others. What if the Democrats get three votes over and it's a 50-50 split over whether or not to bring the witnesses? Does Chief Justice Roberts get to break that tie? Would he break that tie? Any idea what happens? You're testing my knowledge. I know this did not happen in the Clinton impeachment, and I wasn't around in 1868. (laughs) (laughs) Hard as that may be to believe. But I think, I think that Chief Justice Salmon Chase did cast a vote to break a tie, but I'm not 100% sure, so you parenthetically better check me on this. But the point is that even if the Chief Justice were to cast a tie vote, I could see Mitch McConnell asking for a vote to override his decision to cast the tie vote. Right. And McConnell making this a loyalty test for Republicans, and they have a majority. So they could override that, I I think. Yeah. Although I would imagine it would be tough for them to, to override the chief justice. But probably when they're balancing that against the president, that's, you know, the president will probably win that one with his thumb on the scale. Probably. But I think that's unlikely. There are going to be a lot of issues that the Democrats will raise or the Republicans, the president, may provoke by, for example, invoking executive privilege. But in the last analysis, I would expect that there will be the votes either to side with the president on that or not. Right. And if there is this 50-50 split or even if the president and his lawyers back down and say, "Okay, you can have the witnesses, but we're going to claim executive privilege. Now, this idea of executive privilege and whether or not certain people can testify, for example, Don McGahn, that's Mm -hmm. percolating in the federal courts right now. The D.C. Circuit is dealing with it. Is there any chance that if the president claims executive privilege over these witnesses, that John Roberts would make that decision as overseeing the impeachment trial, or would he try and stay as far away as possible from that? I think he'd probably let the Senate make that decision because, you know, there is a Supreme Court ruling back from the 90s written by Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who ultimately a few years later did preside over the Clinton trial and who himself wrote a book about the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson. And it's called Grand Inquests. It's about impeachment. And 
his decision for a court that voted unanimously, although there were concurring opinions, the unanimous decision of the court was that the Senate makes the rules on impeachment, and the court can't contradict those. It has no power under the Constitution to contradict those. Now, that involved a judicial impeachment. Right. But it was about the rules for the judicial impeachment. Yeah. It's really all three branches of the federal government operating at the apex of their powers. And the question is, who wins when all three are operating at the apex? And we just don't know. Well, the answer that Chief Justice Rehnquist gave back in the 90s in the Walter Nixon case was that when the Senate is at the apex of its power, and the only thing we know about impeachment is that the trial is to be done by the Senate, it's the Senate that makes the rules. So my question is, it's still hard to imagine anything overcoming executive privilege, even a Senate vote in this case. Even if they get 51 senators to say, let's bring in the witnesses, and that that's the Senate at the apex of their power saying, yes, we're doing this, as the legislative body and the investigative body, the president owns executive privilege, and that's the height of his power. It's hard to see anything overcoming asserting executive privilege privilege. Well, in the Nixon case, for example, the Supreme Court said you have to, you can't cite executive privilege for these tapes. They're evidence of a crime. You have to turn them over to the court. But in that case, it made its way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled that this is this was their interpretation of the Constitution. Yes, but here, the court is the Senate. Right. It is the last word. That makes sense. So the Senate here is operating as the Supreme Court did in Nixon. It's their own court. They're the it, final word. They're the final word. That's They're not the same as a district, federal district court or a court of appeals. The idea that you would then say, oh, Supreme Court, what should we do? The Supreme Court's already answered that. Right. You have the authority to make the rules. If you say there's no executive privilege for evidence of an impeachable offense, of a high crime or misdemeanor, then... You make that decision, and you can do that with 51 votes. That's it, Nina. You taught me. That makes so much sense to me now. Now I get it. I got to send this to all my law school professors. <laughs> okay, so I want to take you back again to the 1999 trial because I still have a couple of questions about that. So talking about the witnesses in 1999, although Lott and Daschle worked together, they had that line to each other and, and talked regularly and got unanimous consent on many of the issues. They essentially kicked the can down the road on the contentious issue of witnesses. Why do you think they waited until after opening arguments to decide on witnesses back then? Well, they had a behind-closed-doors meeting for senators in the old Senate chamber before the trial began. And there was more than one session, and it was only for senators and a few staff aides. And Daschle said to me in December that it was amazing how different the conversation was behind closed doors when nobody was going to be on television, et cetera, et cetera, and what you would see outside afterwards. But what they agreed and what Senator Phil Graham from Texas, a conservative Republican, and Senator Ted Kennedy, one of the most liberal senators in the Democrats in the Senate, and Graham began to outline what he thought perhaps they should do. And Kennedy began to build on it. And as 
Lot and Dashiell said to me in a joint interview, they started to think, whoops, we've got something here. We just have to, what we need to do, in fact, is to kick the can down the road. Let's make the rules for what we're going to do in the beginning and make the decision about witnesses later. Now, at that time, what Lot was very clear about was that he did not want to have Monica Lewinsky testifying about all kinds of graphic details in the well of the Senate. That was something the Republicans had already lost a big election because of this. They thought they were going to get a lot more votes in the House, and instead they lost votes after the impeachment vote. And Lott understood, number one, that he didn't have the votes to remove Clinton, and number two, that they had already had their hats handed to them in the last election. They didn't want this to happen again. And so they made this decision, and it was unanimous, that they would start and in good faith start. And then what would they do later? They didn't quite know. But the House managers were very intent back then. And the difference, of course, is that the House managers were Republican, trying to remove a Democratic president. And the the leadership of the Senate was in the hands of Senator Lott, who was also a Republican. And The House managers were very determined that they wanted to have testimony from some people, including Lewinsky. And what they finally decided to do was do it off-site, videotape it as a deposition, sworn testimony, and then both sides could use excerpts of it. And they erected these huge screens in the chamber of the Senate so they could play the parts of it they wanted to play. And that's what they did. It sounds a bit like a reality television show that uh, Donald Trump would enjoy producing or, <laughs> or being on. All right. So the final piece of the 1999 trial was Chief Justice William Rehnquist. And beyond the gold stripes on his robe that he wore, he added specifically for the event. The no, Chief he Just- didn't. No. Oh, he, he didn't? didn't? No. He'd had those stripes on his um, on his robe for quite some time. And he'd actually sort of jokingly, I think, suggested to other members of the court that they might want to alter their robes, but nobody did. Ah, okay. I'm still learning things. So besides the gold stripes that were on his robe, but he didn't add for the event, the chief justice admitted that he didn't add much to the proceeding, right? He said a few years later, quote, I did nothing in particular and I did it very well. So talk about the role of the chief justice at the last Senate impeachment trial. He began to understand how little power he had when he asked the sergeant-at-arms how he would turn on his microphone, and the sergeant-at-arms, Jim Ziegler, said to him, you don't. We control that. (laughs) Well, that'll do it. Quite literally muted. Yes. And when you go back and you look, for example, at YouTube stuff from that, that trial, you see that when he starts to talk, the mic doesn't pick it up. There's like a, a nanosecond or a second where you don't hear the very first words out of his mouth quite frequently because he doesn't even control his own microphone. And that's why. Interesting. Okay. But he did understand that his job was to preside, to bring some sort of sense of dignity and appropriateness to this session. And everybody says he did that very well. He only made one significant ruling in in hindsight, and even at the time it wasn't huge. It was one of the senators moved to, Senator Harkin of Iowa moved to require senators not to refer to themselves as jurors because he said, we're more than that. And Rehnquist agreed and said, you will please not refer to them as jurors, but as a court. 
And because they do make the rules, they also decide. So he relied very heavily on the parliamentarian, and I would expect that Roberts is going to do that too for any kind of thing that he had to do. And his job was to keep the trains running and to do it in a proper way. The trouble was that, of course, the trains don't run on time in the United States Senate. It was very frustrating to Chief Justice Rehnquist, who, you know, he couldn't really go back across the street to the court because you just get there and start to get into the weeds of a case and they'd say, okay, we're back and ready. So whenever there was a 10 or 15 minute recess, and they often dragged to an hour or two, it drove him around the bend. And finally, Jim Ziegler, the sergeant at arms, who said he was very grumpy in the beginning, said to him, and Jim Ziegler had clerked at the court. He'd been a a Supreme Court clerk in his young life. And so he took the chief justice to lunch in the Senate dining room and he said, chief, you're kind of grumpy. What can I do to make you less grumpy? And Rehnquist said, well, I love cookies and cream ice cream (laughs) and chocolate chip cookies. And so anytime there was a break, Ziegler would call down to his staff and trigger the call for the ice cream and cookies. So, you know, Rehnquist was a trains running on time guy, and this just drove him around the bend. But he he got the ice cream made a difference, apparently. Do you have a line in or does anyone have a line in on Chief Justice Roberts' favorite ice cream or afternoon treat? You know, Chief Justice Roberts is a lot more buttoned-down guy. Yeah, not not getting crazy with cookies and cream, ice cream. I'm... And the, the, the <laughs> guidance we have from the court is that he's going to go across the street to the Capitol as soon as he's done presiding over the Supreme Court arguments. Right. And that does not allow him any time for lunch. But So I assume he thinks that he'll get lunch over there somehow and that he can use his time over there. Or he can always change it. And if for any reason... He can't be there. Let's say he gets 103 fever and has the flu. The justice who will preside will be the senior justice, who is Clarence Thomas. So we may see an appearance from Justice Thomas. if, if The flu's going around, so it's possible. <laughs> Washington's been dealing with it. Um, all right. So another similarity that may be the case this go around, President Clinton in 99 delivered the State of the Union in the middle of the impeachment trial. And as is typical for the State of the Union, Clinton talked about a range of issues at the time. He recognized an honored guest sitting with the first lady, including the civil rights legend Rosa Parks. And he mentioned the baseball player Sammy Sosa for breaking the single season home run record. But what he didn't talk about at all was impeachment. What was that like? Well, I remember so distinctly thinking to myself, geez, if all this stuff had been found out about me, I would just want to go into a closet in a a fetal position, I would not want to show my face. And here this guy has to go out and give a real State of the Union speech. And as I recall, it was a typically long but very good Clinton speech. As you say, he did not mention impeachment. And I think it did well for him, actually. And people watched it out of sheer fascination. I mean, often people don't watch the State of the Union because it Boring. But they watched this out of sheer fascination, and he sort of delivered. I can't imagine Donald Trump giving a State of the Union speech 12 days after his trial begins, which is how long it was for Clinton, and not going off script. It requires a certain amount of discipline. That is not something our president has been notable for. <laughs> 
That's a good way of putting it. All right. So let's go back to the future now. 21 years later, what do you think will change and what do you think will stay the same this go around? Well, we know that there are probably going to be a lot more fights or appear to be a lot more fights over over evidence. My suspicion is if there are four votes, and there may well be four votes, to hear some witnesses, that McConnell will work out a deal for certain witnesses, and they'll do it off-site the way it was done before, instead of making it a huge spectacle, because that will drive the president around the bend, and McConnell doesn't want to do that. He'll do whatever he has to do to get through this. I don't think there's going to be a motion to dismiss, and I think there wouldn't be the Last time there was a motion to dismiss from Senator Byrd, who'd been previously the majority leader and who was the ultimate institutionalist, and he thought there ought to be a motion to dismiss. And so he made one, and it lost overwhelmingly. There doesn't seem to be somebody who, for some particular legal or institutional reason, is going to do that. And the leadership here is going to run everything. And we'll see whether McConnell ultimately thinks he has to make a deal over witnesses. So if you had to put odds on it, you think we we probably will hear from, for example, John Bolton or Lev Parnas from either via video or live testimony? I think there's a good chance of that because there are there are senators who are retiring, like Lamar Alexander, who has a pretty good legal background himself. And, you know, he's not got anything to lose by doing this. And then there are senators who are up for re-election and whose re-election is very much in doubt. And it's not just Susan Collins, it's Cory Gardner and others. And Lisa Murkowski is another person who might. And then, of course, we've got Rand Paul, who says that if there are witnesses called, he's going to move to have Hunter Biden and perhaps former Vice President Biden called. And that might happen. It's not out of the question. It's also a real possibility that it could backfire. So you would have to worry about that. It does seem the more we get into this, everything old is new again. The president also recently announced his legal team, which is straight out of the 90s. Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz are members of it. So at least that part will also seem eerily similar this go around. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because politicians, we're used to politicians who can't keep away from the microphones, who love the spotlight. And a lot of the Trump team, perhaps not surprisingly, is similar. (laughs) <laughs> yes, Ken Starr is uh, very good at holding a press conference. So no, we know. no, and Alan Dershowitz just also him. Uh, he just loves the limelight. So, talking about the role of the judge this go around and, and the chief justice, as the trial opened last week, Chief Justice John Roberts didn't wear gold stripes on his road, anything like that. What can we expect from this chief justice, and what will he do differently? I think he's very aware of the fact that the one institution of government that still has significant support from the public is the judiciary, and he doesn't want to fritter that away. So I think he'll try to lend a certain dignity and orchestration, if possible, to the events, but he's not going to stick his neck out for a bunch of politicians to get them off the hook. He's going to let them stew themselves. Whatever stew they create, I think, 
the liberal fantasy that he's going to make important rulings and compel Donald Trump to do this and that and the other thing is right. it's just that. It's a fantasy. A liberal fantasy. I, I tend to agree with you on that one. I wanted to ask, John Roberts is is generally very quiet, very buttoned up, as you've called him, an institutionalist. But in November of 2018, in response to the president getting upset about a decision that didn't go his way, he called the judge a, quote, Obama judge. And for whatever reason, that seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back. And Chief Justice Roberts issued a statement essentially saying there are no Obama judges, there are no Bush judges. We're all, as he likes to say, we're just judges trying to call balls and strikes. And that was notable for him to make a comment. And then I think around the holidays that year, he said one of the things we should be thankful for is a neutral judiciary. So I wonder, and then there was some back and forth with the president actually saying, sorry, John Roberts, but there are Obama judges. I wonder this go around Almost certainly, I would think the president is going to live tweet this or try and get involved via Twitter. And do you think that the chief justice would be responsive in any way to commentary from 1600 Pennsylvania? Far be it for me to predict what John Roberts will do, but I don't think so. I don't think he wants to get into a pissing match with the president. That statement that he made rebuking the president for repeatedly trying to politicize the judiciary and and condemn people he disagreed with, judges he disagreed with. My speculation, and it's just speculation, is that he finally sort of lost his temper with this behavior, which he considered to be really atrocious. And he issued, he didn't tweet anything. He didn't say anything. He issued a statement, a very restrained thing to do, but he did it. And he did it quite quickly. As I recall, it was around Thanksgiving time. And I think he was on his way to a family Thanksgiving somewhere else, not in Washington, D.C., when he heard these remarks. That's my recollection. And my guess is he just sort of said, okay, enough. But when Trump immediately tweeted back saying, oh, you're wrong, John Roberts, I think he realized that he that's a, a pig trough of tweets he certainly doesn't want to get into. And he didn't respond at right. all to that. He just backed away. Right. And I think his view is less is more, which is, I think, probably wise. We talked about this before we started recording, but when the Queen recently issued her strongly worded statement, when there were rumors from the palace <laughs> that she was really pissed that mm-hmm. Harry and Meghan were leaving the royal family, I thought about the Chief Justice Roberts' statement because both of them, I think, got really, really, really angry and didn't know what to do with it. And the best they could come up with and the most restrained response was a strongly worded letter. So things that the Chief Justice and the Queen have in common. Yes. And I think, actually, the things that that Donald Trump, one of this is another difference between the Clinton era and now, is that Donald Trump, when he campaigned, called the Chief Justice Roberts, who's a Republican appointee of George W. Bush, is a very conservative Chief Justice. And he called him a disgrace, a disaster. Right. You know, that wasn't <laughs> Clinton had never said anything about the chief justice, he, or, nor had he attacked the Supreme Court. And Trump likes to attack the Supreme Court when he disagrees. So I would be very surprised if Trump, for all of his lack of discipline, 
I don't think he's going to tweet anything about Roberts personally. That would be folly, and I think his aides would probably wrestle his, his smartphone <laughs> hand to the ground, his smartphone out of his hands. <laughs> well, we'll circle back on that. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, we'll I'll take that bet. I'll take. You'll that take bet. that we'll bet. See. I think that's a fair bet to take. I would not. I would not wager a lot on it myself. But I'll take you to lunch if you win. All right, and we'll have a hell of a story. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. That sounds good. That's true. You'll be busy writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So you mentioned earlier that the Senate in 2020 a much different different institution than it was 21 years ago. Do you think that'll force the chief justice to do anything differently or take a more active role because of this back and forth? Or do you think he's still going to stay? It's very hard to predict, but I don't think he has to most of the time. Something may come up where he has to. Right. The senators are not supposed to speak at all. Any question is supposed to be submitted to the chief justice. Right. So... We'll see if that holds. (laughs) We'll see if that holds. But I remember one time, which was when Harkin spoke to, at the very beginning, to say, let's not refer to us as jurors. And so Rehnquist didn't, at that moment, enforce the no speaking rule. But nobody did speak, by and large. They just, they're supposed to sit there in these very uncomfortable chairs, eight hours a day, at least sometimes, and listen. And that may make them more inclined to have witnesses off-site <laughs> so that they don't have to sit there for the whole thing and right. listen. So the Star investigation was conducted over four years leading up to the impeachment mm-hmm. trial back in the 90s. And the Clinton White House was less than thrilled to cooperate, but they did cooperate and Starr eventually interviewed nearly every witness he wanted. One way or the other. This is a much different case in many ways, but one of the biggest is instead of four years, this entire investigation took place over just four months. Mm -hmm. So does that make the trial that much more unpredictable? Well, it makes the trial potentially much more important. If you could actually get witness testimony, and there's some very good lawyers working for the House managers who know how to take testimony— We're seeing this now just as the Lev Parnas stuff unfolds. Who knows if he's telling the truth? I mean, he's not under oath when he appears on MSNBC. Right. It's not... As good of a lawyer as Maddow is, she can't put him under oath. No, she can't put him under oath. And so there... But there are also a lot of documents they have refused to produce. Government documents, State Department documents, NSC documents. They've just refused to produce them. And... White House documents. So that could prove very important as well. So this could be a a trial that's a a show trial. It doesn't really mean a damn thing. Or it could be a trial that actually produces some, but not as much information as the Trump opponents would like. All right. So last question is, is there anything that we're missing here? Is there something that we're all ignoring that we need to be paying attention to this go around? Well, the possibility of war, I suppose. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> this all happens with with us really on a razor's edge still with Iran. We've both stepped back. As we sit here today recording this, the president had tweeted at the time of the Iranian attacks that there had been no American injuries and nobody was hurt. Well, now it turns out there were a bunch of people, very serious soldiers, very seriously hurt. Some of them had to be medevaced to Germany for treatment because of head injuries 
concussions. And that indicates to me how close we were. Nobody died, but if supposing somebody had, and the airplane mishap, which killed well over 100 people, 140-some-odd people, is another to show you just what a mistake can do. So as we're sort of pushing the whole Iranian conflict away from our consciousness, it's still right there. And that could break out at any time. That's a good point. You triggered my mind by saying the injuries. You called the docket that the Supreme Court has earlier in this interview an explosive docket, or at least a more explosive one than in previous years most recently. And and Chief Justice Roberts is going to go do his day job from 9 to 12, 10 to 12, and then mm-hmm. go across the street at 1 o'clock and do the impeachment trial. Do you think there's any chance that we get opinions in any of the explosive cases that have been argued while all of this is going on? Well, I suppose it's possible. But there is a long break coming up. There's what's called the winter writing break. And so once we get through next week, we won't have court until again until the end of February. And presumably, the trial will be either nearly over or over by then. So the opportunity for issuing opinions is next week and the following Monday. And then we're out of it. And for Chief Justice Roberts, the winter writing break is just going to be a winter impeachment break for him, it sounds like. Or and working long hours at night. Yeah, right. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for teaching us this week. We appreciate you being on. As always, Katie, it's wonderful to be on your podcast. And I hope that uh, I didn't make any mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) You never do. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, kiddo. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.